So, if you haven't been here, we're in the book of Judges, and we're going through a series called The Kingless Kingdom. And it's all about how when our lives are missing Jesus the King, bad things tend to happen, and our lives don't go in the direction that God intended. So today we're in Judges chapter 2. Now in Judges chapter 1, which we just finished, God sent Israel into the promised land. And he said, if you're going to be in the promised land, which I've been leading you for years and years and years, what you need to do is you need to drive the Canaanites out of the land. These people are wicked, they're sinful, they sacrifice to other gods. These people are no good, so you need to drive them out. But what does Israel do? Does they, do they drive them out? No, they don't. They actually live with them and make packs with them, and it turns into a really terrible situation. So that's the beginning of chapter 2. We're going to see the angel of the Lord appear, and he's got some words to say to Israel. So Judges chapter 2, verse 1. Uh, it's going to be up on the screen with the creepy narration reading it. So read along, listen along. Here we go. Then the angel of the Lord came up from Gilgal to Bochim and said, I led you up from Egypt and brought you to the land of which I swore to your fathers. And I said, I will never break my covenant with you. And you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall tear down their altars. But you have not obeyed my voice. Why have you done this? Now, I just want to say really quick that I'm really glad that whenever God speaks to me, that that creepy music doesn't start playing, because I would just be like, I'm, I'm about to die right now. So God shows up in the story, and he says to Israel, hey, you have not kept my covenant. Now, can anyone here tell me what a covenant is? Anybody? Yeah. A promise? Kind of, sort of? A, con a contract, a promise contract. Okay, you're getting there. Anybody else? Yeah? Yeah? Trev, did you have it? It's like an agreement with God or a partnership with God. You see, a covenant is when God says to someone, I'm going to partner with you to accomplish a purpose. So the covenant of God is one of the central points of the entire biblical story. The, the covenant is God saying to man, listen, I want to save the world, but I'm not going to do it on my own. I am actually going to partner with humanity to save them. And so God picks Israel and says, I'm going to partner with you on this great mission to save the world. Um, the Bible Project actually puts together a really good video on covenant. So we're going to watch that really quick, and then we're going to get back into the message. So here we go. If you've been around Christians, you've probably heard of the idea of having a personal relationship with God, which could mean different things in the Bible, like having God as a friend or your father or maybe your teacher. But there's one particular way that the Bible talks about this relationship that you find all over. But strangely, we don't talk about it that much. And that's the idea of a partnership with God. A partnership like working alongside someone to accomplish a goal together. Right. And this is actually what you see at the beginning of the Bible. God creates this good world full of all of this potential. And then God appoints these unique creatures, humans, as his partners in bringing more and more goodness out of all that potential. But the humans don't want to partner with God. They rebel and try to create a world on their own terms. And so this broken partnership is the Bible's explanation for why we're stuck in a world of corruption and injustice and the tragedy of death. 
it's not like there's just one or two humans who have bailed on this relationship. In the story of the Bible, everyone has abandoned the partnership with God. So what God does is select a smaller group of people out of the many, and he makes a new partnership with them called a covenant. And in a covenant, God makes promises, and then in exchange asks his partner to fulfill certain commitments. And the purpose of all of this is to somehow use this covenant relationship to renew his partnership with everybody else. Now, there are actually four times in the Old Testament that we're told God initiates a covenant relationship with Noah, Abraham, the nation of Israel, and King David. And it's through these that God is forming a covenant family into which all people will eventually be invited. So let's see how these work. The first one is with Noah. So in this story, God has just brought the flood to cleanse the world of humanity's corruption. And Noah and his family are the only ones left. And so God makes a covenant with Noah saying, listen, I know that humans will continue to be evil, but despite that, I'm not going to destroy it like this again. Instead, the earth will be this reliable place for us to work together. Great, so what does Noah have to do? Nothing. And that's what's so interesting about this first covenant is that God is promising to be faithful even though he knows humans won't be. The next time we see God make a covenant is with a man named Abraham. God chooses him, promises to bless him, give him a large family, lots of land where they can flourish. And in return, God asks Abraham to trust him and train up his family to do what is right and just. And the whole reason for this covenant is God says that somehow he's going to bring his blessing to all families of the world through this one family. So that's Abraham. The next time we see God make a covenant is when Abraham's family grows into the tribe of Israel. And this covenant is with the whole tribe. God asks them to obey a set of laws, which are these guidelines for living well as a community of God's partners. And if they do this, then God promises to bless them and that they will become a people who then represent him to the rest of humanity. That's the covenant with Israel. The last covenant is with King David. Yeah, the tribe of Israel has become this large nation ruled by David. And God asked David and his descendants to partner with him by leading Israel in obeying the laws and doing what is right and just. And God promises that one day, one of David's sons will come and extend God's kingdom of peace and blessing over all the nations. So those are the four covenants that God makes in order to restore his partnership with the whole world. But here's what happens. Israel breaks the covenant. They worship other gods, they allow horrible injustice, and so they lose their land and are forced off into exile. So it seems hopeless. But during this time, Israel's prophets talked about a day when God would restore these covenants in spite of Israel's failure, somehow. Yeah, they called it the new covenant. And this is actually what's so interesting about Jesus is that he's introduced into this story as the one who fulfills all of these covenant relationships. We're told that he's from the family of Abraham and so he will bring the blessings of that family to the whole world. We're told that he's the faithful Israelite who was able to truly obey the law. And we're told that he's the king from the line of David. And so he goes about extending God's kingdom of justice and peace to all. And that's really remarkable for one guy. Yeah, and what it highlights is perhaps the most surprising claim of all made about this man, that Jesus is no mere human, but rather God become human. And God did this in order to be that faithful covenant partner that we are all made to be, but have failed to be. And so through Jesus, God has opened up a way for anyone to be in a renewed partnership with him. 
So Jesus calls people to follow him and become part of this new covenant family. And despite their failures, Jesus is committed to making them into partners who were becoming more and more faithful. The story of the Bible ends with a vision of a fully renewed world, full of goodness and peace. And there's this renewed humanity there, partnering together with God to expand the goodness of his creation. And so the end of the Bible story is really a new beginning. All right. So... The covenant is a huge central part of the biblical story. And I'm spending a lot of time on this because I think it's really important because I tended to miss this growing up. The way I viewed the Bible when I was a kid and when I was your guys' age, even though my parents, my dad was the pastor of this church, uh, for some reason it didn't sink in. And I viewed the Bible as... Old Testament was about a lot of wandering in the desert, and it's all about the promised land, and the main goal is getting into the land, and also Father Abraham has a lot of sons. And and I viewed it as disconnected from the New Testament. The New Testament I thought of as God decided one day to come and save everyone through Jesus, and he dies on the cross to give me a new sweet life. And then I think of modern times as read your Bible, go to church, wait for Jesus to come back, and don't sin. Uh, But really, it's not as disconnected as that. The Bible is all one big story. The Old Testament, starting from Adam to Abraham to Moses uh, to David, it, it all leads into Jesus. The story is all about God trying to rescue and redeem humanity. So we're here in the church age waiting for the day when Jesus comes to the new, he brings the new heaven and earth together, the place called heaven where we'll live forever, the place we look forward to. So where are we right now? Well, we are in the book of Judges. We are somewhere in between Moses and David. And so it is this slice of life called the, the, the kingless kingdom where we're seeing what happens when a people give in to sin. Now, right now, it says that the angel of the Lord came from Gilgal to Bochem. Notice that. The angel of the Lord appears, and he's upset. He's upset that Israel is not taking care of the covenant. Now, many scholars believe that when the Bible says the angel of the Lord, it's actually talking about Jesus Christ. You see, uh, it's something called a theophany, which means an appearance of God or Jesus in the Old Testament. You have to understand that before Jesus came to earth, and became Jesus, became a man, took on that name, he was the son of God, and he was known as a messenger. He would come and he would give messages to people. Now, if you notice, if you look back at that verse, in uh, verse 1 and verse 2, it says that when the angel of the Lord appeared, he didn't say, thus saith the Lord. He just spoke to them. He said, why have you not kept my covenant? Which makes me think that this is probably Jesus himself coming to deliver the message. This shows that Jesus cares about the covenant. He says, you were supposed to tear down the altars. Don't you guys understand that this is all leading up to me coming to the earth to save humanity? And you guys can't even tear down a few simple altars? Why won't you keep my commandments? He says, because you have not kept my covenant, in effect, you are making a covenant with the enemy. And that is so true. When our lives are not based around the mission of Jesus, we are not making a covenant with him, a partnership with him. We are making a partnership with the enemy. And you might be thinking, well, you know, I'm not doing hard drugs. I'm not sleeping around. I'm not sacrificing goats in my backyard. So I'm not really making a covenant with Satan. But Jesus says, you're either for me or against me. If we are not living our life for Christ, we are living our life for the values and the goals of the enemy and his mission. Let's continue on in verse 3. Let's see what the angel of the Lord has to say. Therefore, I also said... 
I will not drive them out before you. They shall be thorns in your side, and their gods shall be a snare to you. Do you hear that? He says, I will not drive them out because you didn't. I'm not going to drive them out. And in fact, their gods will be a snare to you. What Yahweh is saying, what the angel of the Lord is saying is, I'm going to give you what you want. That's my punishment. God had told them to drive out these Canaanites because they were wicked, because they sacrificed their own children. It was a land called to be a holy land. God wanted this land to be separate. Now, what does the word holy mean? We've talked about this many times. The word holy means set apart for a purpose. It means that you set yourself aside because you have something specific you want to do. For those of you guys who've done sports and you've trained for basketball, you were making yourself holy for basketball. For a season of time, you changed the way you ate, you changed your schedule, you showed up to practice because you were setting yourself aside for a purpose. The purpose that God had called Israel to, the holiness he had called them to, is he wanted this land called Canaan to be now a land called Israel, basically the first outpost of the kingdom of God. It was going to be the place where Jesus would be born one day, the place where God would save the world. It was extremely important that Israel follow the instructions. But the people don't want to do it. They want to worship idols. They want to sin. That brings up the question, what is an idol? This is an important question, guys, for all of us. What is an idol? Tim Keller, in his book, Judges for You, this is a book I'm reading through to kind of help me understand and prepare for teaching this book. Keller says this, idols are snares. A snare is a trap. They trap us. When we make something into an idol, it binds and enslaves us. We have to have it, so we can't say no to it. We are addicted to it. This is why many people work too hard, sacrificing family, friendship, and health at the altar of career, or give themselves to certain relationships that are destructive, and so on. You know, sometimes God's punishment is he allows us what we want. He allows us to fall into sin. And I said this last Wednesday, but one of the worst things that can happen is when God lets go of you. When he says, if you want to do that, I've told you over and over again, don't sin. I love you. I love you. Stop turning to these things. Stop like drifting off into these sins. When God lifts his hand and he says, I'm not going to try to stop you anymore. I'm just going to let you fall into that. And I've talked to so many students who've said, you know what? I kind of just need this. I need a little bit of an experience of just being on my own, away from the Lord, away from the church. I kind of just need to figure out who I am. I need to go through this phase. And what they're thinking is, that they're walking into this season of their life full of freedom, but really they're walking into a trap. It's a snare. Satan's sins will never fulfill you in the way that you want. It's only this false sense of fulfillment. And the problem is sin traps people in it and ruins lives. If you think about it, no one ever woke up one morning and said, I think I'm going to be a murderer. It was a lifetime of compromises and sins and choices. No one woke up one morning and said, I think I'm going to cheat on my husband. I think I'm going to cheat on my wife. It was a lifetime of little compromises, little glances, little things they looked at, and it all builds up into one big sinful existence. We need to be so careful. Let's continue on to verse 4, and let's see what happens next. So it was. When the angel of the Lord spoke these words to all the children of Israel, 
that the people lifted up their voices and wept. Then they called the name of that place Bochim, and they sacrificed there to the Lord. And when Joshua had dismissed the people, the children of Israel went each to his own inheritance to possess the land. So all throughout this book, we're going to see something called the sin cycle. You can see the picture here. It starts with sin, people bowing down to false idols. And as you're listening to this, think in your own life, because this is not some ancient sin cycle. This is the same sin cycle we find ourselves in. So it starts with sin, worshiping something besides Christ, giving your life to something besides Christ. The next thing that follows is oppression. God gives you up to your own desires. He gives you up to your own sins, and you find yourself now oppressed by them. Many of you guys know what this feels like. Sin is awesome for a time. It feels good, but for a while, after a while, you feel the effects of it, and you feel the pain in your life, and you see the destruction. So then now, stage three would be repentance. That's where they're at. The people hear the angel of the Lord, and they, and they weep. They cry. They, they cry so much that they cover the ground of this place with tears, and they name the place Bokim, which in Hebrew means the place of weeping. So just imagine, you know, your parents come to you and you get in trouble and you start crying and then you're like, I've cried so much, I'm going to like rename this place the place of my tears. And your parents are just like, you're weird. What's wrong with you? Uh, You know what? This reminds me a lot of myself when I was a kid because I don't know if this is you, but let's just raise our hands and admit it. How many of you guys have been guilty of when you were a little kid getting in trouble and crying, not because you were sorry about what you did, because, but because you were upset that you got caught? Anybody? Yeah, I've been there. Absolutely. I think that's where these people are. God shows up and he's like, you've forsaken my covenant. What have you done? You know what? Judgment is coming and they start weeping because they know that they've been caught. But you know what? It doesn't matter what we say. What matters is our actions. And we see in their actions in the next following chapters, they're not truly sorry because they don't repent. And it's tragic. You see, It says in verse 6 that Joshua and the children of Israel went out and they started possessing the land. God said, here's the promised land. So they said, all right, we're going to go take possession of our land. I'm going to take this territory. I'm going to take this spot over here. Oh, that land over there looks nice. They're taking possession of the land, but the problem is God had not possessed their hearts. And that's just tragic. One of my favorite bands, Death Cab for Cutie, Um, I might be seeing them tonight. Uh, It's me and my wife's seven-year anniversary of our marriage, so we're super stoked, and we found tickets on Craigslist. So we might, yeah, thanks for the slow clap. Love it, James. Um, She's my favorite person. I love her to death, and I'm so happy that we might see Death Cab. If you don't know who they are, amazing band. This is Ben Gibbard. Um, Ben Gibbard wrote this song called I Will Possess Your Heart, and here's what the lyrics say. How I wish you could see the potential the potential of you and me. It's like a book elegantly bound, but in a language you can't read just yet. You've got to spend some time, love. You've got to spend some time with me. And I know that you'll find, love, I will possess your heart. There are days when outside your window I see my reflection as I slowly pass. And I long for this mirrored perspective when we'll be lovers, lovers at last. You reject my advances and desperate pleas. I won't let you let me down so easily. Now, depending on your perspective, 
perspective, this sounds either really romantic or really stalkerish. Um, but, you know, I, I think that this, to me, reflects God's heart for Israel and for the people. He's saying, listen, I made you to spend time with me. I made you because I love you. You've got to spend some time with me. And he says, you know what? You're rejecting my advances, but listen, I'm the God who will not let you let me down so easily. And I love that. Josh White, one of my favorite pastors, says, Yahweh was the God who was unwilling to go on living without his people. He says, I would rather die than be without you. Listen, if you're here today and you're struggling with sin, yes, God often lets us leave into our sin, but you have to know the whole time he's agonizing over that because he loves you and he cares about you. He's not some distant like parental figure who's just got their uh, you know, uh, hands folded and crossed and saying, you know, you come back to me and beg for forgiveness. He cares about you. And the whole time you are away in your sin, he's cooking up a plan to rescue you. He's dreaming about the relationship that you and him could have. You have to know that that is always on the top of God's priority list, is the love between you and him that he sees potential for. Let's continue on to verse 7. So the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua, and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. Now Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died when he was one hundred and ten years old. And they buried him within the border of his inheritance at timnath in the mountains of Ephraim, on the north side of Mount Gaish. When all that generation had been gathered to their fathers, another generation arose after them, who did not know the Lord, nor the work which he had done for Israel. So what is being described here is the generation of Joshua passing away. So you guys all know who Joshua is. Raise your hand if you know who Joshua is. Yeah? Okay. I like how Bradley didn't raise his hand. He just pointed. Oh, to Josh, younger man. Not that Josh. We're talking about Joshua in the Bible. So um, you've got Abraham. Abraham has many sons. They end up in Israel as slaves. Who leads them out? His name starts with an M. Moses, you guys know. Moses is in the desert. He's got a young guy he raises up as his assistant. His name is Joshua. And if you've seen VeggieTales, he was played by Larry the Cucumber, and he marched around a wall, and the wall fell down. Bible character, standard story. This gives us a little insight into what kind of person Joshua was. His name was Joshua, the son of Nun. His mom was not of Nun. It wouldn't make sense because nuns can't have babies because they're not allowed to. Don't become a nun. Anyway, um, Joshua, <laughs> Joshua, you, you, just, you don't have to be a nun to serve Jesus, okay? Just letting you know. Joshua, the son of Nun, was a servant of the Lord, and he died when he was 110 years old. And Joshua uh, was a generation, he was a part of generation that had seen in verse 7 all the great works of the Lord which he had done for Israel. This was a great generation. It was Joshua's generation. It was a generation that had seen everything. So just imagine, you're a part of this generation. You're an old person now. Picture that. I know it's hard because you're, you like just got out of junior high. But like picture this. You're old and you're decrepit and you've got wrinkles and you, arthritis and back problems and all of these great things you have to look forward to. So 
You're remembering your past. As a young child, when you were a little kid, you were there as a baby, as a toddler, watching Moses, this old guy with gray hair and a beard, parting the Red Sea as you and your family escaped Egypt. Just imagine that. You saw that happen. You saw the strong faith of Moses. You saw the miracles of Moses. You watched um, you know, Moses kind of act like the Yoda of your tribe. And then this guy your age, Joshua, raises up up and he's like the Obi-Wan Kenobi. He's like the young Jedi apprentice and he's following in the footsteps. Well, now this generation has died. They're all dead. And who is left? It's the kids of that generation. And what are we told about these kids? We're told that they lost their faith. Why do you think they lost their faith? Why was it different for them? Started with Moses and his generation, then it was Joshua and his generation as kids growing up watching Moses. Now you've got this third generation. Why do you think they walked away? You know, I've got an idea. I think it's because as the third generation, the Lord wasn't really real to them. They looked at their parents and their grandparents and they said, you know what, that's their faith. That's my grandparents' faith. Yeah, grandpa talks a lot about miracles, but I wasn't there when God parted the Red Sea. I wasn't around. And in fact, for this young generation, they probably didn't see very many miracles. And in fact, all they knew their entire life was wandering in the desert. Think about that. You're born in a desert. Like, you don't have a home. You've got a tent. And you change location all the time. And it's sandy. So you're constantly getting sunburned and like sand rashes everywhere. It's just gnarly. It's like, like how many of you guys like the beach? But like, do you want to like walk around the beach all day, every day for miles and miles and there's no water? So just sand? <laughs> yeah. Some of you guys, surfers are nodding your head. Yeah, that sounds awesome. There's no water. It's just, it's the worst part of the beach. Because admit it, we don't go to the beach for the sand. We go for the water and the sun. The sand is like the awkward extra third wheel that we have to tolerate. Yeah, anyway, that's how I feel at least. I hate hate sand. It's very sandy. So they're just wandering in the desert all the time, and they have no idea who God is. They They haven't seen the miracles. They don't understand. Listen, you guys, I relate this very much to being a third generation Christian myself because that's what I am and that's what very many of you are. I believe that's why God has allowed me to be your pastor for so long because I understand what it's like to be a third generation Christian. Most of you have Christian parents and Christian grandparents. And even if you don't have Christian grandparents, symbolically we all do because we're here a part of Calvary Chapel and we're third generation Christians. Our parents were around after the first generation of Calvary Chapel people, which was the hippies who came out of the Jesus People movement. They were barefoot and long-haired and bearded, and they did drugs, and they just were crazy, and they needed Jesus. And a guy named Chuck Smith showed up, and he was this big guy who was bald and was totally not a cool hippie, but for some reason, God used him, and here we all are. But... Our parents remember that stuff very fondly because they watched it happen when they were young growing up. For many of you guys, you have no idea what I'm talking about. You're like, what even happened? You were born into this church. You were born into this whole Christianity thing. Raise your hand if you were born into Christianity. Anybody? Yeah? You were born into it. So just like this third generation, you're born kind of wandering in the desert of Christianity. And just like this third generation... 
often you can struggle with your faith because you're like, is this even real? I've never seen God do a miracle. I've never seen God do anything crazy. All I know is what my parents and youth pastor taught me. How can I know this is even real? You're like a soldier with amnesia. You were born on the battlefield and you've got a gun in your hand and you're like, what are we even fighting for? I don't understand what's going on. Most of you guys here don't have a gnarly testimony. You don't have some testimony where you're like, yeah, I was a prostitute, drug dealer, crazy mass murderer, and now I met Jesus and here I am. You're like, I was born and the doctor slapped me and I said, hallelujah. And I went to kids ministry and sang with Pastor Tom and then junior high ministry. And now I've just, I've been here my entire life. I'm here. You guys get what I'm saying. You know what I'm talking about. You were born into it. Here's the reality. 50%, I would say over 50% of my classmates who were born into Christianity and went to a Christian school no longer walk with Jesus and in fact are burnt out on the church and jaded and do not like Jesus and do not like their experiences. And they look back on the things they experienced in Christianity and they said, man, I was so blind back then. I was so wrong back then. Now I'm enlightened. Now I see the light. The reality is for us in the third generation, we so easily can forget what God has for us. We can, we can forget the mission. We can forget the purpose. We can even forget how to listen to the voice of God. We can just coast off of what other people tell us and go through church and never truly have an enlightening, real, fresh, relevant relationship with the God who died for us so that we could have that relationship. And I'm warning you guys, as an older brother in this generation, don't let it happen to you. Don't forget the covenant, the mission. What's it all about? God loving people and God saving people. When you boil down all of the catchphrases and all of the religiosity and all of the summer camps and all of the sermons and all of the worship songs and all of the hand motions in VBS, when you boil it all down, what is it about? It's God loves you and he cared enough about you to come to this earth and die on a tree because he wants a relationship with you. And when you strip away all of that extra stuff and you just get it through your head that Jesus loves you, that simple gospel message, when that becomes true to you, when that becomes the core of who you are, that is what makes a change. But let's look in verse 11 at what they do. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they forsook the Lord God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. And they followed other gods from among the gods of the people who were all around them. And they bowed down to them, and they provoked the Lord to anger. So, the third generation, our generation in this parable, in this story, it's what they do. They forsake the Lord. They turn and they say, forget you, God. We're going to worship idols. Yeah, you'll still be a part of our life, God. You'll still be in the background. But we want to live for what we want to live for. It says in verse 10 through 11, it describes the rebellious hearts. It says they knew not the Lord or what he had done for Israel. Now that word knew probably does not mean that they didn't know about Exodus or the Red Sea or the crossing of the Jordan or the walls of Jericho falling, but rather that the saving acts of God were no longer precious or central to them. They had not learned to revere and rejoice in what God has done. That word know in Hebrew, it means 
it, it's, it, it, the word is yada. Everyone say yada. Yada. So it's a romantic word. So in the Bible, when it says Adam knew his wife, it means that Adam was with his wife to the point where they had babies afterwards as a result. It's an intimate knowing. So don't trip out on that. Um, When God says he wants to know you, it means he wants to know you on the deepest level that a God can know a human. He wants to yada you. That's the reason God created marriage and romantic relationships. It's a, it's a mirror image. For those of you guys here who you just sit around, you're like, oh, I would just love a relationship. Or if you're human, I mean, some of you guys are like, man, I, I would really like to have sex one day. So a lot of you guys probably feel that way because you're human and it's awkward to talk about. But the reality is that's built in as humans. We want to know someone intimately. We want to get married. We want to have sex. We want to have kids. We want to know someone. We want to be uh, in a relationship with someone where when you even strip away all the physical relationship stuff emotionally you know someone deeper than you could ever know Uh, you're able to gaze into their eyes and look at them and talk to them and know them and and you know they look at you and despite all your awkwardness girls the the makeup is off the hair is messy you know guys you get a little bit overweight or maybe you're at home in your pajamas and you're not dressed as good or maybe you're you fail and you're in a really stupid moment you fall on your face you don't look cool you look awkward this person knows you so deeply that they They love you all the same, and they, in fact, adore you despite all your flaws. That is the love that humans crave. We're built with this desire to know someone on that level on all ways, body, mind, soul, physical, emotional, relational. That is the reason that God designed us for this spiritual, emotional connection, this deep relationship. He wants to yada us. But Israel won't let him. The third generation won't let him. They forget the gospel. Now, those of you guys here who hear that and you're like, the gospel, that's in the New Testament. What does gospel mean? Good news. So Jesus hasn't come yet. So that's the good, good, good news. But for the Israelites, what's the good news for them at this time? What's their good news? Their good news is that they were slaves. They were in bondage, and God led them out of Egypt and said, I will deliver you into a free land where you can love and serve God. That was the gospel for them. That was the good news, and it was a part of the bigger gospel plan that God had. They just didn't see it yet, but they forgot the good news. They forgot that they were saved from slavery in Egypt. They forgot that they were bought at a price by God. They forgot his mighty acts. They forgot the gospel. And how often do we forget that? How often do we forget the good things God has done in our life? How often do we forget to look back on when we were a kid and the way that God saved us, the way he delivered us, the sins he freed us from, the way he helped our family through a hard time, the way he delivered us from a trial. He does that so much throughout our life, but we forget. And I've talked to people who were so deceived and stuck in their sin that the enemy had erased from their mind. They couldn't think of anything God had done. And they say, what has God ever done for me? And they forget that even if, let's say, God had never done anything for you specifically, he never gave you a nice car, he he never gave you a bunch of money, he never gave you the perfect relationship, regardless of all that, he died for you. Who else can you say did that? Who else do you know hung on a tree and bled out for you? And we just brush it aside because it's so common. It's It's just church talk. But the reality is he did it. And you can't take that away. He loves you, and that's why he did. These 
Israelites, they decided to become just like the Canaanites, just like the sinful people. God gave them this chance to be this people set apart and holy, and they said, nah, I'd rather just be like the people around me. That's the temptation of every Christian teenager that I know, to become like those who don't know God. Because think about it, those of you guys here, and you, if you're here and you know God is real, like you felt his presence, you know him, even though sometimes you sin and struggle, like you know in the depths of your heart that God is real, you might say, I know God is real, therefore I don't sin. But I felt this way, and maybe you have too, as a young person, have you, you don't need to show your hands, but just think about this. Have you ever been jealous of people who aren't Christians? Have you ever looked at people who don't know God and, and, and said, man, that must be nice. You know, they can just sin and they don't even know it's sin. They can just mess up and they, it's fine. It's just a part of their life. Man, I'm a little jealous of that. When I sin, like my pastor calls me and my parents get on me and my friends are like, what are you doing? Like, we need to follow Jesus. Like, that actually seems like a lot of freedom to be one of those people who just don't care. In fact, maybe after I graduate, I'll move to New York or LA or somewhere where I can hang out with people who don't know Jesus and I can just be myself because I feel like I'm not myself right now. In the church, I feel like I can't be myself and I've just got to graduate and I've just got to get out from underneath my parents and I just want to be who I've always wanted to be. But it's all a lie. And it's a lie the enemy tells people your age a lot. For the Israelites, their restrictions and they had a lot of restrictions, but their restrictions saved them from destruction. It let them be a part of God's plan to save the entire world. Listen, we're not under Levitical law. Like, you don't have to read Leviticus and, like, freak out every time you eat meat about whether or not it's been, like, properly cleansed by priests seven times. We're in a much better place here in the New Testament. Bottom line is love Jesus, follow Jesus, and obey him, and watch as he transforms your life from sin to repentance and renewal and righteousness and just this awesome life. The Christian life is awesome. It's so, so much more freedom than what they had in the Old Testament. We're, we're in such a better place. And yes, Jesus says, follow me, it's a narrow gate. But listen, the narrow gate opens up to a wider world than you could ever imagine. It's so important for us to understand that Satan is always trying to attack our potential. John Corson, Ben Corson's dad, says this. He says, wake up. Look what's happening in your lives. I know of young men who could have turned the world upside down for the Lord. I know of young guys who could have really made a mark for the kingdom, but because they weren't awake to what the word of God says concerning filthiness, dirty jokes, uncleanliness, fornication, sleeping around, pornography, and all of these sins, they're ineffective to this day. Listen, it says that they did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. The Baals were these false gods. The word Baal in the Canaanite language actually means Lord. So basically, what happens is they leave serving the Lord, and instead they serve these mini lords, these false lords. It's so sad, but we see it so much in our own life. Now, who's responsible? Well, Keller in his book says that it's a responsibility on the old generation and the young. We can't blame our parents and our grandparents. They didn't raise us right. They weren't good parents. Look, it's on, it's on both. Uh, 
He says it's always impossible to lay blame neatly when one generation fails to pass its faith on to the next one. Did the first generation fail to reach out or did the second generation just harden their hearts? The answer is usually both. Mistakes made by a Christian generation are often magnified in the next nominal one. Commitment is replaced by complacency and then compromise. You know, I believe that one of the biggest problems that face the Israelite generation, the third generation, is that they failed to listen to what was passed down to them, which was known as the Shema. Does anyone here know of the Shema? Raise your hand if you've heard of the Shema. No? Okay. So the Shema was this ancient Hebrew word um, or this ancient Hebrew expression that basically meant this is what we stand for. It was like their catchphrase. It was like, I'll just, I have, there's this video by the Bible Project really quick that goes into it. So I'm going to show this really quick and it's going to explain what the Shema was. The book of Deuteronomy, the epic conclusion to the Torah and spoiler alert, Moses is going to die. Now, in order to understand this book, we need to remember the story so far. So Israel has escaped from slavery in Egypt. Then they spend one year at Mount Sinai. This is where they made the covenant with God to obey all of these laws. Then they wander around the desert for 40 years before they make it to the Jordan River, which is right across from the land God promised them. They're ready to go in. This is where the book of Deuteronomy begins. And what this book is really is a speech. Moses gives these final words, it's like a pep talk, to the new generation of Israel that's about to go into the land. And the speech, it's broken up into three large sections. So Moses begins the first part of the speech with a somber tone because he's highlighting Israel's rebellion and resistance, which has been going on for the last 40 years. And that sets up the rest of this opening section, which is Moses' challenge to this new generation to be different from their parents and to respond to God's grace with love and obedience. So he reminds them of the Ten Commandments, like the basics of the covenant, and then he gives them this very famous line. Listen, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Now, in Jewish tradition, this is called the Shema because the first Hebrew word in this line is Shema Yisrael. And this became a very important prayer in Judaism, said twice a day. And it emphasizes the Israelites' exclusive commitment to their God, the one true God who loved them and who rescued them from slavery. Right, because they're about to go into a land where people are worshiping many other gods. And Moses thinks that loyalty to the Lord, their God, is the only way to life. Now, notice these key words in the Shema, listen and love. You're going to find these words all over this opening section of the speech. The word listen in Hebrew means more than just let sound waves come into your ears. It includes the idea of responding to what you hear. So for Israel, this means responding to God's grace by obeying the laws of the covenant. And then listen is always followed by love. Yeah, so love is the true motivation for obeying the laws. Israel won't obey without love and they don't truly love if they don't obey. So there's this tight connection between loving and listening that runs through the entire book. And so Moses tells them that if they do listen and love, they will fulfill their original calling as the family of Abraham to show all of the nations the wisdom and justice of God and so become a blessing to them. So that's the Shema. I'm going to throw it up on the screen. It's found in verse 4 of Deuteronomy chapter 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Every Israelite would have this just tattooed on their heart. 
You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Jesus himself repeats the Shema later on in the Gospels. He brings it up. This is so important, he says. And yes, we're not Israel. We're Americans in 2017. But this Shema is something that we also should have burned on our heart. Here, oh Hope's anchor. Here, oh Vista kids in 2017. Our God is one. We don't serve other gods. We don't serve idols. We can't make anything else in our life God because our God is one. We need to love our God, our Lord, Yahweh, our Savior, Jesus, with our whole heart, with our whole soul, and with all of our strength. Have any of you guys here, just show of hands, have any of you guys here ever felt a calling on your life to reach the generation after you? And I don't even know what they're called. You guys are millennials. If you're 13 here, you are literally the last of the millennials. Uh, people who are 12 and younger, I have no idea what we're going to call them. They're just Generation Z at this point. They're going to come up eventually with some nickname for them, and then there's going to be millions of articles that are going to be making fun of them and calling them the worst generation of all time, and then everyone will be off of our back, which will be great. Um, but, um, yeah, if, if you're here, and have you ever felt a stirring in your heart to help the generation younger than you? Anybody? Yeah, yeah, awesome, a few of you guys. Cool. Listen, if we are going to, if you and I, the millennials of the world, are going to reach the generation after us, we need this mentality burned into our heart. We love our God. He is one. We serve him. We give him all of our heart, all of our soul, and all of our strength. If you leave with anything today, burn that into your brain. Now listen. I'm wrapping up here for today. It is very important that for us, if we're trying to reach the world, whether it's the generation younger than you or the generation of your own age, we're all called to reach somebody. We need to make sure that our, our faith is without hypocrisy. How many of you guys hate hypocrisy? Anybody? Like you've just got like a radar for it. Like when people are hypocritical, when Christians are hypocritical, like you know, when you see pastors totally not representing Jesus, it just bums you out. I'm that way. That's the thing with our generation. We're very just like sensitive to hypocrisy. Um, and, and inconsistency is something that people tend to hate. You know, one example of this is how we see um, do you guys know the generation of our parents? That's called the baby boomer generation. When they were kids, they turned away. So they, when they were your age, when your parents were your age, their generation turned away from mainstream Christianity because they saw how the churches actively supported racist policies and practices, and they saw many established churches opposing the civil rights movement. If you study your history, you know this is true. Martin Luther King Jr. basically had to beg white evangelical pastors to side with him on civil rights. He had to say, hey, listen, like, I think that I'm doing the work of Jesus here, fighting for people having equal rights, fighting for people respecting one another, fighting for people not getting hosed down for trying to drink at the same drinking fountain as somebody else. And white pastors who were supposed to be following Jesus totally stood against him. Um, it, it's, it's tragic to see how that happened. So our parents' generation were very radical in the sense that they looked at that and they said, that's not right, that's not right. But here's the problem. History tends to repeat itself. The hippies become the ones in suits and ties. And what I've seen is, for some reason now, my parents' generation, 
they tend to be the generation that today denies that racism even exists. That's a bit of hypocrisy, wouldn't you say? Uh, I've seen people in my parents' generation say, that's not a problem, there's no racism anymore, we fixed that in the 60s. And, and I, I see it also in ways where certain sins get picked on. You know, I see today in my parents' generation, not my parents per se, but people in my parents' generation tend to focus specifically on certain types of sins. Like they'll look at homosexuality and they'll say, oh, this is the worst thing that's ever happened to humanity. These people are sick and twisted when really it was their generation that basically furthered divorce in the world. And so we see this all over the place as people picking and choosing and the hypocrisy when it comes to sin. And how many of you guys have seen friends leave the faith? Any of you guys, have you seen friends walk away from the Lord? Yeah, I have too. I've seen many people leave and and a reason that they'll give is, you know, Christians just aren't like Jesus. Christians just don't act like Jesus. And they stop believing in the faith of people that they looked up to because all of a sudden, because they see that that person they looked up to, that parent, that pastor, that friend, they see that really that person was just sinning all the time and hiding it. They, they look at that person and they say, man, I don't even know if my faith was real. I've seen that happen. I've seen people I looked up to fall away from the Lord, and then I see people who went to school with me say, well, if they're not going to hold it together, then I'm not going to follow Jesus. Listen, I'm going to share with you guys a quick story that I think illustrates the importance of humility and fighting against hypocrisy. It's an amazing story of a man who was humble enough to admit he was wrong and repent and turn back to the covenant. So I was listening to a Bible study at Reality San Francisco. Some of you guys went with us there when we went to the missions trip to San Francisco with YWAM. So uh, that's youth with a mission if you're like, what the heck is YWAM? Um, So Reality San Francisco basically put together this big community forum for racial reconciliation in their town. They brought people together, pastors and churches, uh, people of all different races to basically talk about how can we as a city tackle the problem of racism from a gospel perspective? How can we look at it from a Jesus perspective? Well, this guy showed up named Johnny Lee Clary. Now, if you look at him, I mean, he looks like the child of a snowman and a Yeti. Like he, he looks like he would be the most racist guy Ever. And he was. He used to be a high up member of the KKK. Here's the interesting thing nowadays, he is actually the assistant pastor at an all black church. How the heck did that happen? Okay, I will explain the story. So, this is John Lee Clary. This is his testimony. He grew up in a racist family in Oklahoma. His father taught him to shout racial slurs at African Americans from passing cars, and his uncle bragged about killing a black man in Georgia and getting away with it. Clary was sent to a Baptist Sunday school, but he stopped being sent to that Sunday school when his parents found out that they were singing in that school, Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red and yellow, black and white. They are precious in his sight. When his parents found out they were singing that song, they pulled him out. When he was 11, Clary's father committed suicide and his mother abandoned him. He went to live with his older sister in Los Angeles and he ended up in an abusive situation with his older sister. In the racial tumult of the city in the early 1970s, Clary discovered David Duke, the white supremacist who was at the time attracting attention for founding a new modern KKK. I also found out this guy used to live in Fallbrook. Super weird. Anyway, uh, Clary joined the KKK at the age of 14. 
This is, and this is what he said about the KKK. He said, this was the first time anyone had ever encouraged me. He said, I was the kid that nobody wanted. I was the rotten kid that was going to end up in jail. And then all of a sudden, here's this KKK member telling me I'm going to be a part of society and it's going to treat me like a family member. And he said, man, that really got my attention. So that's why I joined. So he was an eager, eager student of the KKK's message. And he was soon back in Oklahoma working as a KKK representative. Um, Clary would attempt to stir up racial tensions in the state and use them to recruit new members. At the age of 21, he became the grand dragon of the KKK, which, I mean, come on, KKK, if you want people to take you seriously, like, don't name your ranking system like the grand dragon uh, or like the imperial wizard is actually what he became next. In the 80s, he became the imperial wizard of the KKK. Um, But listen, it's serious stuff because he ended up setting fire to a black church. He ended up going to this black church and lighting it on fire. Thankfully, no one was injured. Now, there was this black pastor at the time named Pastor Watts. And Pastor Watts' response to racism was awesome. Basically, his response was just, Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. He would quote scripture at this guy. When, when uh, this KKK guy, John Lee Clary, tried to debate with him, he would just quote scripture back at him. He'd show him kindness. Um, they showed up to his house with a burning cross. And Pastor Watts just comes out and he's like, so do you guys want marshmallows or pork for your barbecue? That was his response. That was his response. So through Pastor Watts' example, John Lee Clary starts to realize that there's something radically different about Christ followers. And so he was asked later on after he got saved, they said, what changed you, John? And he said, I'll tell them, the only thing that changed me was the word of God. I had to get my mind renewed, and that was through God's word. It was the Bible. That's what changed him. He picked up the scriptures, he started reading them for himself, and he started to realize, oh, wow, like, God loves all people. Like, no matter what they look like or what their skin looks like, God loves people and died for them. The gospel radically transformed this guy, and he realized he was wrong. And he started to go around speaking against racism and about forgiveness in Jesus. And the place that he started was actually the church that he set on fire. That was the first church he showed up in, and he preached this apology message. Um, And he became friends with that pastor who he debated with and who he set his church on fire. Listen, that's the power of the gospel. And if you're here today and you're like, I struggle with my sin and I am a mess up and I just don't know if I can follow Jesus. Look, listen, if a guy who set churches on fire and who was a flaming racist could be changed by the power of the gospel simply by just reading the scriptures and applying the truth to his heart, think of what God could do with you. You who sit here saying, oh, I really struggle with my sins, and I just don't know if I have time for Jesus right now, and I, maybe when I get older, when I graduate. No, listen, God wants you now. He's calling you to be a part of him. Listen, in conclusion today, I leave you with just a simple few things. One, the key is understanding the gospel. Understand the gospel. Understanding the gospel is the difference between life and death. Are you a generation who will remember the gospel? And when you see hypocrisy in your own life and the people around you, will you respond by just abandoning and saying, well, if my parents aren't going to follow Jesus, then I won't. If my sister or brother aren't going to follow Jesus, then I won't. If my friends aren't going to follow Jesus, then I won't. I can't handle the hypocrisy. No, you are called to follow Jesus. Stop worrying about what other people are doing. Just 
look in your own heart and ask the question, am I following Jesus? Is the gospel real to me? Is my heart on fire for Christ? Let's pray. Lord, we love you, and we thank you so much for who you are and what you've done. God, I just pray a simple prayer that we would all remember the message of the Shema, which is, hear, hear, our Lord is one God, and we'll love him with all our heart, mind, and strength. Help us to remember that. Help us to be a generation that follows you. We love you, Jesus, in your name, amen.